My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Michael Millerman. He is an independent philosophy or a political philosophy teacher. Uh, he currently teaches courses on Leo Strauss and Heidegger, and he is probably one of the world experts in the work of Alexander Dugan, uh, and also in um, the critique of liberalism from the right, from, from both sides, but he's, he's probably one of the, the few people who, who ventures uh, to, to the right side. So thank you so much for, for joining me, Michael. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to start by going uh, a bit into your personal background, because I know you have uh, roots in Russia. Um, and um, I'm curious kind of how, how you came to, if, if this ties in any way to, to your interest in, uh, in political philosophy or, you know, because I, I know, I mean, I'm, I'm Romanian, uh, I've I've been born under communism, and uh, I have to say it, it's definitely um, informed a little bit of my curiosity about, you know, political regimes, political philosophy, and you're obviously someone who's taken it much further that, than I have, but it's, it, it seems to be kind of a permanent uh, theme in my life. So I'm curious if that's informed your life in any way. Well, in my case, it's like this. I was born in Canada. My parents were born in Moldova. They left the former Soviet Union. 1979, 1980. So I never lived in Russia. I never lived in the former USSR. And I've only visited Moldova one time fairly briefly so that my dad could show me around where he used to live. I therefore grew up in a liberal democracy in Canada where we didn't even talk about politics or religion in the household. And we didn't really have growing up a lot of points of comparison or contrast between Western culture and Soviet or Russian or Eastern European culture. I wasn't thinking about any of that. However, we did speak some Russian in the household growing up, so I had some familiarity with the language. I wasn't fluent in it like a native Russian speaker would be, but I was more advanced than a person would be who has no Russian connection at all. Now, at some point, I developed an interest in mystical teachings. And I think it's in part because I have an older brother and an older sister, and they had books around the house by beatniks and by psychotherapists and by existentialist authors and things like that. That's just what they were reading. And some of that got into my hands and I really took a liking to the mystical writers. And I was particularly interested in the commonality among them because whatever tradition they happen to be writing within, they seem to be describing a similar experience. So later in life, I combined my interest in mystical research, let's say, or mystical experience with my pre-existing knowledge of Russian though it was rough. And I brushed up on my Russian at university in order to be able to study Russian religious philosophy, which has more of a mystical than a rationalistic flavor. And so those interests came together. And I originally started working on a Russian religious philosopher named Vladimir Solovyov, who died the same year Nietzsche did, but who writes very differently. That was one interesting point of reference for me. He's got in English, the book is called Lectures on Divine Humanity or Lectures on God-Manhood, uh, Bogachilovichstva. So 
I've been working on that. And then at some point when I had these interests, the mystical interest on one hand, the Russian language coming together through the university study combined with what I knew from the household. And the third piece of the puzzle was that I discovered Leo Strauss at this time and therefore platonic political philosophy, the issue of the philosopher king and that whole question of the relationship between the philosopher and the political community. And just at that time, I read an article about Dugan which had all of these threads coalescing, the mystical, the philosophical, and the political. And that just caught me at the right moment in the right way. And that was my introduction to him. So I sometimes talk to people in my family or who are close to me, friends, who were born in the former Soviet Union or who lived in Russia before coming to the West. And at times they've said, well, all you really know is Canada. You never lived there. You don't have the right experiential point of reference for what communism was in order to criticize it theoretically from the left. It's too free floating if you've never lived there. And at the same time, as I acknowledge, there's some of that. I know having studied Dugan's particular form of anti-liberalism, that he's not calling for a return to the Soviet Union. And so people who live there, they may have the opposite problem, that it's their go-to reference point for what an alternative to liberalism might be. But anyhow, that's, uh, that's sort of how I came to the topic and the role of the Russian dimension in my background or in my history. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't know it was Moldova. Um, it's the Republic of Moldova. So kind of the the the, the USSR fraction, because we have a Romanian side of Moldova, which we claim and we love, <laughs> we wouldn't want to give to the to 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 the Republic. But uh, yeah, so this is in like, um, which which region? So they were in Kishinev. That's the way I learned to say it. I think it's probably other pronunciations as well. And when I went to visit, my dad had been returning there for the first time after I think 15 years or so when he brought me to visit 2015 or 16, whenever it was. And uh, I noticed there were a lot of young uh, people speaking more Romanian than Russian. And there were booths set up on, I think it was the main street or seemed to me like one of the main streets where people were advancing political projects for reunification or for greater Romania or something like that. I don't know enough about the politics of the region to know all of that. But with Transnistria or Predinstrovia and all these other dimensions, it was definitely a fascinating place to find myself and much more saturated with linguistic politics and with the meaning of history and of political history than, for example, the places in Canada where I was more used to living at the time. Now I'm in Montreal and there's a dimension of language politics here as well because of the French and English and all of that. But definitely it was an interesting experience to be even for a couple of weeks in uh, Moldova. Yeah, that's um, the, the, it's, it's interesting because I mean I'm I'm from the other side of of, of kind of this this space in, in Romania. Um, I'm on the border to Hungary, and there's there's quite a lot of uh, you know language politics and and, and you know et ethnic frictions here in this area. But it's 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 with uh, with the kind of the Austro-Hungarian part of uh, of the empires. Um, it's it's interesting that you 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 mentioned Dugan. Like Dugan is. Um, I mean, obviously, you're mentioning doing because you're you're in the, you know uh, you're, that's your expertise. But in in the context of Romania, um, Dugan is seen as kind of this this dark eminence that essentially represents some mystical layer uh, of of Russian propaganda, uh, and very few people that that I know of are informed about what you know, what actual, you know, what, what Dugan's actual philosophy is and what he studies beyond the, the propaganda. Um, and I remember I was listening to, I think, one of your uh, podcasts on, on Dugan. And I remember my mom was, was walking by and because I, I just leave it, leave it open. And she was like, oh, what, what sort of dark propaganda is this? So it's, it's, there's quite a lot of, um, 
there's that layer where you know people understand now that the the Soviet Union was you know was bad. We've experienced it. We don't really want to go back, especially people in my mother's generation. Um, and when they see figures like Dugan, they 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 kind of get you know scared because they're like, okay, this is you know this is a reactionary, and the only form of reaction that you see is you know you have kind of the pole of you know Western liberalism, which is where all the you know 17,000 varieties of chocolate come from and where we all want to go. Um, and then there's this, you know, kind of dark crypto part of part of the continent where we want to, you know, detach from. So uh, it's it's a it's it's a strange tension. I, and I wonder if you if you're aware of kind of more positive movements in in Eastern Europe or something uh, related to Dugan. Well, I want to say two things about this. The first is that there are groups of his supporters in Eastern Europe and in Western Europe and elsewhere, people who think that neo-Eurasianism or the fourth political theory are worth implementing or following or somehow fighting for. Now, the thrust of my research over the last almost 10 years has been on the theoretical side of his writings, more so than on the networks that aim at implementation or that take up the message, whether they do so faithfully or in a distorting manner. That's a separate realm of questioning around Dugan's influence, the various groups that he's in touch with and all of that. But it's just never been the primary area of my own focus. I do happen to know that for sure there are supporters of his, like I said, all across uh, all across Europe. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a huge, hugely influential or central degree of support. But among, I would put it this way, why is he important for some people? Well, because we find ourselves in a situation of global post-liberalism, the transformation of liberalism after its victory over Nazism and communism, where it turned in on itself in his analysis, and having rejected external authorities began to eat itself alive, return against its internal hierarchies, internal structures, and having liberated itself from collective identities of a more prosaic kind, it began to liberate itself from gender identity and ultimately even from human identity. So this liberalism 2.0 or this new phase of global postmodern post-liberalism, Dugan says, we need to understand it thoroughly, what it is, how we got here, what it means, and what the potential alternatives to it are that are more than just repackaging, restating, and returning to discarded alternatives. And in order to do that intellectual operation, he has recourse to a series of pretty weighty thinkers. He's not just spitballing or doing it at some superficial dimension, although I have to say that sometimes there's an activistic or ideological or propaganda level of presentation to his thought, but it coexists with a deeper kind of analysis. So he has a book, for example, on comparative cultural anthropology or on ethnosociology, where he develops the categories and the concepts that he thinks help us to think about the relationship between ethnicities, peoples, states, civil society, global society, and post-society. Or he has his Heidegger books and all of that. Now, when people try to understand an alternative and they see the simplest version of it, like, oh, uh, you know, if you oppose the worst excesses of postmodern post-liberalism, then you're a Nazi or you're a fascist. That's the, that is pretty much the level of the discourse in the public sphere right now, right? Extremely 
impoverished. Aware, yes. And then you say, okay, let's get one step more sophisticated. Oh no, in order to defend liberalism, we have to go to like Friedman or Hayek or Ayn Rand or something like that. Or in order to attack it, we need to go to Schmidt. Okay, now we're starting to get into some more serious levels if we say that we need Carl Schmidt. But I think the appeal to thinking people who see a problem with the status quo, the appeal of Dugan to thinking people who see a, stat a problem with the status quo, is that he gives us genuine intellectual resources with which to see more and to think more. It doesn't mean somebody has to accept every iota of his presentation, but it means that he gives us access, at least I think that he does, to a broader range of phenomena that therefore we can process and try to understand. The name of the game in the public sphere is absolutely crush the span of potentially thinkable alternatives down to its lowest and dumbest common denominator. Well, if you think that that's a bad thing, then you have an appetite for any thinker who can reverse that process, who can give you, again, a big picture to work with. One of the reasons I work on Leo Strauss is because he does that as well. He situates the constitution of modernity, what it is to be modern, in a longer history of political thought or history, history of political philosophy, to be more precise, that allows us to see the specific character of the break that the modern thinkers made with the classical alternative. So he gives us the classical or the ancient classical natural right, platonic political philosophy as an alternative to the modern thought construction. So he's good for that, that more categories, more concepts, more arguments, more to work with. And Dugan does the same. Now, I would uh, venture to say, although I want to be delicate here because the people that I'm going to be obliquely referring to, I don't really know that well, but there are some let's say thinkers who also want to give us a lot of alternatives today. And so they can also embrace like a sort of schizophrenic multiplicity of perspectives, thoughts, ideas, and approaches. But when I usually see that kind of writing, I wonder whether it lacks the seriousness and the depth of Dugan and Strauss. And I think that what we need is to combine depth and seriousness with breadth and scope in order to see our situation clearly doesn't mean we're going to become Straussians or Eurasianists. It just means it gives us better footing on which to think and then to act. Mm -hmm. And and what specifically does does Dugan add to, to the to the landscape? Because you said, you know, he has he has the breadth, he has the depth, but kind of what what additional dimensions does he does he bring into the conversation that can help us understand, you know, a potential post liberal future? Many, very many. So if I start from the most basic observation that he made that gave me access to something new. So I'll tell you how I was able to see something new. When I was studying philosophy at the University of British Columbia in Canada during my undergraduate years, it was just like I described to you the public sphere today, either you're a liberal or a fascist, basically. Somehow, you know, that's the way the categories were constituted. And I noticed that even Strauss himself was being called a fascist by some of my students and by some of my professors. And having really read Strauss, even at the time as an undergraduate, I knew something's not right here. He's not a fascist. I mean, he, yes, he's critical of liberalism. No, he's not a communist. Doesn't mean that he's a fascist. So after I read that article by Dugan that I told you first put him on the uh, radar for me, I Googled him at the time, 2011 or so, and I found a short talk of his on the idea of the fourth political theory, literally a five minute talk. And what he said is the 20th century was characterized by this battle between liberalism, communism and fascism, walked through that sort of presentation and said that now that liberalism has become victorious, what if you oppose it, but you don't want to oppose it as a communist or as a fascist? 
Well, if the three political theories are exhaustive, they exhaust the spectrum of possible ideological positions, relevant possible ideological positions, then you're at an impasse. So he declares the fourth political theory as an opening for us to think opposite that model. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, so that's what's going on among my classmates and professors. They think if you're critical of liberalism, not from the left, bingo, bango, you're a fascist. There's just no other way to slice it and dice it because that's all you have to work with. So immediately I saw, okay, this gives us access to a way of thinking outside of that particular set of constraints. And Dugan himself says in his book, I don't know why when people first hear about the fourth political theory, they don't open a bottle of champagne to celebrate the newfound possibilities for thinking about political life. That's kind of how I felt at the time when I had this idea. So that's a very elementary, basic level. And unfortunately, because of the elementary, basic character of our public discourse today, even that is helpful by itself. But then you begin to go on and on and on. So he says, for example, he, topics that he deals with in his writings. What is the nature of time? Why do some ideologies construe time as unidirectional and progressive? How is the constitution of temporality rooted or not in human existence? And can there be a variety of legitimate expressions of our sense of time, of temporality. So if anybody has an issue with the idea that, number one, progress is inevitable, and number two, it culminates in all of the worst excesses of postmodern post-liberalism, then you actually need an understanding of the underlying notion of time. You need to be able to account for it, and you need to be able to provide well-rooted alternatives to it. So that's something that he does, for example. Something else, I'll give you another example. Some for some people, the idea of diversity, now I don't mean, again, like you have to hire 50% women, but I mean that differences matter internationally, globally, is an important topic. There are people other than ourselves, so we need to try to understand them in their own right. So what Dugan says in one of his books on Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy, he says, before we can talk about the genuine diversity of peoples at a philosophical level, you need an account of the possibility of fundamental diversity. What does it mean at an existential level for a people to be distinct from another people? So we're not talking here that uh, these, you like sushi and I like pizza. We're saying, what is it about our language as an expression of our relationship to being that is distinct, if anything? So what he does in his second Heidegger book is he runs, I mean, loose, I'm not going to say everything about it, but I'll just give you an encapsulated version of it. He runs Heidegger's existential analytic, what Heidegger did for the German language, for German Dasein, Dugin repeats for Russian Dasein in the Russian language, looking at the key words in Russian in which being is, one, is a root. Okay, so he does a careful analysis of the ontology of the Russian language and finds that it doesn't map one-to-one -one with the German equivalents. And therefore, he has an argument to show that Russian Dasein is existentially distinct from German Dasein. Now, it's not just an assertion. It's not cheap propaganda. It doesn't mean that it's true from A to Z. And it doesn't mean that it's methodologically absolutely um, bulletproof. But it shows he always has recourse to, in my reading of him at least, or in the books of his that I've studied, he always has recourse to the question, do we have a genuinely sound theoretical basis for this kind of assertion? If you oppose American unipolar globalism and you want to assert, like he does, a multipolar world in opposition to a unipolar world, 
then you need to be able to answer. This is now the international relations dimension. What are the poles of a multipolar world? He says there's civilizations. What's a civilization? How do you study civilizations? On what basis can we say that it's more than just bare assertion that there's civilization A and B? So this whole corpus, and again, even though I'm in some ways among the people in the West who have studied him most carefully, I'm not the only one, there are others, but I think I've done my part and I'm doing it. Even so, I have to acknowledge, I feel I've only scratched the surface of what there is in the writings because there's a lot, he's prolific in that sense. So if people, what does he have to offer, you said, right? He has to offer an alternative model that doesn't just reproduce the former models. And that is, here's another way, here's something else I wanna add that I think is important because this is obvious when you contrast him with national conservatives in the US, like Yoram Hazoni, for example, who is still a helpful resource in some respects, but other thinkers in the American anti-liberal right, Dugan acknowledges that you need to incorporate, like you can't be an a-philosophical, non-philosophical, you can't never have read Husserl and talk intelligently about the constitution of a human life if you're constructing a full-fledged political theory or political philosophy. So I think that's something else that's valuable. For those people who think we need the deeper understanding, he's someone who's working on that and giving us access to it. You're not necessarily going to get, if you compare um, you know, The Demon and Democracy or Why Liberalism Failed, all good books, okay? I recommend them as helpful analyses. Um, Why Liberalism Failed, the Hazoni's book on nationalism. And you compare that with something that Dugan has written, you'll see that the set of influences he draws on are much more profound, I would say. Mm. Um, one one lever that's that's kind of been helpful to me to to not necessarily deconstruct, but to, to put some some question marks around the like the normative liberal consensus was the idea of the individual, like from from many um, faith traditions and you know many philosophical angles, uh, our perspective on on what it is to be an individual and and how the individual acts and kind of this you know rational homunculus. Uh, I think you know Patrick Deneen speaks about this the the self making self. Uh, I think is is a very uh, fraught dimension and it is the only dimension that is allowed in in uh, in you know it's, it's the the way we calculate in liberalism this is the the rational individual doing 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 his bidding um and i feel like a, a lot of the you know the postmodern dysfunction that that we see now is kind of downstream from this conception i think it's really limiting i think it's you know it's 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 narrow uh, and i'm curious if, if dugan has something to say about the the dimension of the individual dugan does and strauss does as well i want to say something about strauss in a minute but dugan takes explicit aim right at the heart of individualism as the meaning of liberalism. So he says in the fourth political theory that part of his operation, part of his methodological operation is to rip out the heart from each of the three political theories from liberalism, communism, fascism, so that when the rest of the theory's elements are neutralized and fall to the ground, they can be creatively reappropriated potentially for some other purpose. But you can only do that when you've dismembered the ideological whole, which you can only do by punching out its center, let's say, okay, or by removing some key concept. So when he does this and he gets to liberalism, he says, the concept in liberalism that we're rejecting first and foremost is the individual. He has this line in the book, The Forward Political Theory, man is anything but an individual. Any other definition of who we are except individual is fair game, is legitimate. So it's a total repudiation of what 
liberalism regards as the most important unit of analysis. Now, something I've always found helpful in understanding this idea is that there's more to being human than being an individual or differently stated individual is a partial and distorted interpretation of human being. And so some people say, some people have said to me over the years when I discussed Dugan with them, it's almost as though they don't even know what's left if you get rid of the individual, because for them, the individual is all that there is. It's the basis of communities, since communities are basically a summation of individuals. You know, if you have 250 individuals, then you have a community of 250 people. It's one plus one plus one plus one. So they have a hard time understanding that there could be an analysis of what it is to be human that doesn't devolve to the interpretation of ourselves primarily as, individu as individuals. So totally rejects it, totally repudiates it. And at the same time, as I mentioned, when he rips out the heart of the ideology, he can creatively reappropriate the other pieces that remain. He says, what can we borrow then from liberalism, having done this neutralization operation by rejecting the individual? He says the fourth political theory can take liberalism's view of the importance of human freedom, because he says, in fact, human freedom is of absolute importance. It's of absolute importance to ourselves and to the fourth political theory. But he says freedom must include the freedom to say no to liberalism. So there is that operation where he rejects the individual. What he offers in its stead, that's an interesting discussion as well. He has some experimental alternatives where he says, for example, you can look at the postmodern thinkers on the left who are ex experimenting with new subjectivities like the rhizome, the body without organs, and all of that. He says that's worth thinking about because they may be saying something important. He says there may be a piecemeal creation of a new subject that combines race and class, for example, like a, a red-brown type, not individualistic, but a combination of class and uh, race. He also says that the sociologist Gilbert Durand, he's written some books on his sociology of the imagination. He says that's another potential. What are we going to replace the individual with? With the imagination as something that precedes its expression as individual, group, community, race, class, and all of that. And there's one whole set of theoretical work he's done on that. But the one that he lands on, the one that I have seen most often in his writing, and that in the book, The Fourth Political Theory, he emphasizes, is that we're going to take... I mean, the proponents of the fourth political theory, just speaking from Dugan's perspective, are going to take Dasein, Heidegger's analysis of human existence, as the starting point for understanding ourselves and our political communities. So it definitely hammers away at individualism. Why I wanted to mention Strauss briefly is because one of his students, Alan Bloom, one of his star students, some of you maybe know him, right? The Closing of the American Mind and other works that he had written and translated of Plato's, for example, he has a chapter in Closing of the American Mind where he contrasts the self with the soul as two totally different interpretations of ourselves with two sets of uh, consequences. And turning our attention away from the self towards the soul would be a step in the right direction, I think, for both Strauss and Dugan and their schools, although they may do it somehow differently because the Straussians usually go back to Plato Dugan also does that, but with Heidegger, he takes a step beyond Plato as well. So that's just to say attack on the individual and giving us a deeper uh, dimension of ourselves to understand is common to both of these um, thinkers who matter to me. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you've, if you've had a look at how the, the work of René Girard might, might play into this 
um, as well. Because at least from from my perspective, that's been a very helpful uh, lens onto onto kind of how people um, function in an aggregate. And you know, I feel like if if you understand Gerard, you know, taking the individual seriously and and you know being I don't know libertarian or something like that becomes a bit a bit ridiculous. Obviously, if you, if you buy Gerard, because <laughs> you you might not be uh, you know might not buy into mimesis. But uh, I'm I'm curious what your take is on that. I don't know enough about him to say I read a little bit and it was interesting and appealing to me, especially if he has some account of the meaning of literature in relationship to mysticism. And that's sort of a separate level of my interest in him. But I'm no expert. I haven't read enough to comment. I definitely think he should be on the table as someone that we look to for a better understanding of ourselves and the meaning of political life and all of that. And I want to just say that earlier this year, I taught a course on Strauss through Justin Murphy's website. I don't know if you and your listeners know Justin Murphy, otherlife.co, indiethinkers.org. And I think he has a course coming up soon taught by somebody on uh, on Girard. So that could be interesting, maybe even for me and for other people looking to get deeper into Girard. But I like what I've read of his. I have some issues and not, you know, I haven't worked them out well enough to, to talk about them here. But as a point of reference, like Peter Thiel's essay on the Straussian moment brings up Girard as a point of contrast to Strauss. And in some sense, you know, I take the Straussian side of that contrast, but um, I would recommend reading anybody who gives us deeper insights, Gerard included. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the the um, the person who teaches that course, Jeff Schollenberger, he's been he was one of the first guests on this podcast, and Justin Murphy's been on the podcast as well. So, yeah, definitely oh, fantastic part of part of the Good. family. Can can recommend all all of the courses there. Um, another figure that I wanted to to bring up with you, and one that's been really influential with me. So I'm now just I'm just kind of listing off a lot of people that I thought I think are interesting, and maybe you have something to say about it. Um, is is John Gray, which is kind of a a very post-liberal uh he's kind of obviously a, a more contemporary you know philosophical mind um and and his perspective is is a bit i feel like even even not necessarily pe more pessimistic but more detached from the individual than even Heidegger. So he, his perspective is that you know Heidegger is still still a Christian because he um, he feels that the the hum humans are special by their position as you know as the as the seat of Dasein. Uh, you know they're they're different from a cup. They're different. You know I, I don't think necessarily mm -hmm. that uh, I think I think John Gray is 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 so skeptical about the nature of reality that he's you know he's he's not sure that we're that different from a cup or <laughs> from you know the door or something like that i'm curious if you've engaged with this this uh, this field at all yeah i haven't read him in particular although the name sounds familiar maybe an article here or there or something like that but i am familiar with this idea that heidegger has an unfair division between ourselves and beings unlike us and that we need to just get rid of that division and interpret ourselves just like we would interpret anything else in the world and my initial impressions whenever i encounter something like that is that they don't understand the issues well that it's totally wrong-headed and that it is not an alternative i could put myself behind it seems to me to be based on some fundamental misunderstandings about the nation of human existence and about interpretation about heidegger uh about how things are for us about phenomenology all of that i've never really been able to when i have encountered writings like that see them as anything other than seriously philosophically in error Okay. <laughs> I still Good. think I should add, no, listen, I, I'm, that's not about John Gray in particular, because like I said, I I'm only commenting more broadly on this, this impulse to avoid 
possibly to avoid an understanding of how and why and who we are as distinct from other things. And I know sometimes, again, not him in particular, this view that, oh, Heidegger is still too Christian and his main categories and concepts and intuitions are Christian. My view is that that's just um, not the case. And so, you know, I may be wrong. They may be wrong. You know, we may both be wrong. But my, my, um, my hunch is that that's an, a quick and easy way to bypass Heidegger. Whereas I think that our task is to work, work through, work through him. So I, uh, I don't find any resonance in the view that he's still too Christian on the basis of my own understanding of his work. And therefore, when I see that in somebody else's, I have my doubts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think my, my reservation with, with, with John Gray's work is that, you know, he's someone who rejects liberalism at a, at a very basic level, obviously, but at the same time, he uh, is, is so skeptical about alternatives that he always makes, uh, you know, reservations for, uh, for, for liberalism. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he, he, he goes too far in a way and he doesn't go far enough in others. Um, but yeah, that, that's just no, let me just say Let me just say on this point, Pat, like Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, he says at the end that we don't need a theoretical alternative to liberalism. So there too, there's a suspicion about constructing an alternative at the theoretical or philosophical level. And I think if we roughly divide the critics of liberalism into those who think that it's a philosophical problem that requires a philosophical solution, and those who think that maybe it's a philosophical problem, but it doesn't require a philosophical solution, or it's not a philosophical problem, and it doesn't require a philosophical solution. I, um, my, the branch that I work on, because it's the one that's closest to me, the one that I'm most in agreement with, is that at least this, we need a philosophical solution is a big part of the puzzle. So anybody who takes that off the agenda is always going to be more alien to me than the philosophical supremacists. Yeah, I, I can understand from a practical perspective why people might do that, you know, like like you were describing, uh, you know, the, the current uh, atmosphere is that you're, you're already on on, you know, uh, in, in quicksand when you're discussing these subjects, anyone who ventures to, to provide a solution or even muses about a potential solution is already, you know, uh, accused of, of anything. I mean, I've, I've kind of <laughs> had had some pushback in that direction as well, you know, just, you know, being associated with fascism instantly by the second you start to question, I don't know, John Stuart Mill or something. So yeah, it's a, uh, it's 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 normal, and uh, I I can understand why people are. But I think uh, Patrick Deneen's currently writing a book on, uh, it's going to be called After Liberalism, and I think he's trying to do something in that direction to provide at least a little bit of, uh, you know, philosophical or, you know, from, from a political theory standpoint, like what, what, what could be the alternatives? So, I mean, he's, he's putting his hat in the ring and, you know, I respect that because I know it's hard. <laughs> I have nothing against what he's doing. I recommend the Why Liberalism Failed. I'm sure After Liberalism is going to be a great book as well. It's, ha it's important to have thoughtful people in the arena thinking through these issues, trying to at least to give a proper diagnosis. And then if they take the additional step to trying to offer some, some uh, solution, then you know all the, all the better on them. So I'm not bad-mouthing him in any way. I just wanted to say that not everybody sees it as primarily a philosophical problem. And it's something else here. This is fresh to my mind because it was in the Strauss class that I taught, and I think it's topical. When people do begin to look for potential solutions, they're going to have recourse to some set of ideas. Like, for example, what Strauss said about the intellectual atmosphere in post-war Germany was that when it reached its crisis of relativism, and then some people turned to 
political theology. They turned to Schmidt. There was a conflict between absolute atheism and total obedience to divine revelation. So suddenly the stakes became very high. The theoretical issues became very profound. And Strauss says they didn't have the wherewithal to treat those questions adequately, to look for an alternative. Because, for example, he says nobody had treated the question of miracles versus atheism, which stands at the basis of modern science, as deeply as Spinoza had done, but nobody at that time was really digging their, you know, getting into Spinoza in a lot of detail. Or something that I think is relevant in at least the American context, I don't know what it's like, maybe you can let me know, in the Romanian context, but an anti-liberalism that tries to go to natural law thinking, to the uh, tradition of Christian uh, Aristotelianism, to Aquinas and that kind of thing, it seems like an alternative. And what Strauss said when he assessed that movement among his contemporaries, he said, in going back to Aquinas, they are still in a derivative tradition, a tradition that's derivative from an understanding of Aristotle. And unless we have a directly adequate interpretation of Aristotle, we don't really know yet whether our Christian Aristotelianism is shaky or not. So he said like a partial return, a return to natural law theories of the 17th, 18th century or whatever, doesn't get us to that situation where we can see things clearly before they became a derivative tradition. So it's pretty interesting, at least for me, that for both Dugan and Strauss, in order to understand, and I think this represents a type of cast of mind, in order to get beyond modern liberalism, it's not just enough to go back to some pre-existing alternative. You need to go back to the roots of our tradition. And only by understanding the roots of our tradition can we understand the fruits of our tradition to where we've what we've become and where we've arrived. And so they both make their way back to Plato and Aristotle by means of Heidegger, which is a remarkable, in my view, uh, coincidence, since Strauss and Dugan obviously are different kinds of thinkers with different recommendations and different intellectual personas. And yet this idea that we need to get to the roots is important. And I wonder whether at least, like I said, in the American context, for some people who are going back, rolling it back to a resource, they're stopping too soon, but maybe not. And um, maybe in Romania, it's different. Yeah, um, I think I mean, Romania is, uh, you know, like Eastern Europe and the fact that it's, it's very fractured here politically, ethnically, linguistically, um, it, it's it's hard to even, you know, conceive of, you know, what, what the roots of, uh, of political, you know, organization even were here because it was like a little agglomeration of city states and, and infighting and, and imperial conquest. So it was always about more about survival and, you know, like, Little, little, the little pleasures of independence until the next empire came to conquer you. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it is hard. And I think there's, there's something to be said about the fact that, you know, a, a lot of um, discourse about political theory comes from the Anglo tradition through kind of the like the, the Anglo ethnos, uh, all of these things. And, and essentially, a, a lot of that discourse gets normalized globally. And whereas, you know, the idea that, um, you know, John Stuart Mill might apply to, you know, Bucharest is there, there's a stretch there as well uh, just in, in the simple fact that you know these are even even at the most basic level these are you know Protestant people um, and the, or they're you know Catholic in, in, in the Anglo tradition or, or there, there's all sorts of uh, implications there uh, and I've I've seen this kind of malfunction even just in the in the relationship between Romania and the European Union and just the, the fact that 
it's you know translating forms of organization and administration that work well even in the closest closer parts of western europe is very very hard here in in many ways yeah that's a hugely important point and i think again dugan gives us access to that issue because he reestablishes ethnosociology as a field of great concern he says uh, this may be a helpful image i mean i think that it is he says that the, the body soul and spirit of the fourth political theory are geopolitics that's like the body ethnosociology that's like the soul and theology that's the spirit and that their deepest root is heidegger so the understanding of the multiplicity of ethnoses and how they are of peoples and how unless you really understand them you definitely can't just try to impose like you said right books from one tradition onto another one and imagine that it's going to go flawlessly or that it's going to make any sense or that it's not going to produce the opposite effect to the one that you intended is um is of course hugely important and it's not just translating the institutions it's even translating the terms of analysis because i know that there are some words if you give the english equivalent quote unquote of the word you're actually just stepping into a completely different semantic context uh, the simplest example in my i mean as i see it is narod a russian word if you translate it into english as people it's hugely misleading because when you hear people in English, it has one set of connotations. When you hear Narod in Russian, it has a different set of connotations, at least at a theoretical level. And so too with state, with government, with law, with all of the key concepts of political life, you sort of have to understand them in their civilizational or cultural boundary or horizon. I think you're right about that. And Dugan does more than Strauss does. Again, I keep saying about these guys because they're the ones that I work on the most that I know the best. But whoever helps us to do that whoever helps us to see that is is doing a doing an important task for sure so i think you're totally um you're totally right even the meaning of history well as many poles as many civilizations as many peoples so many meanings of history right not just one for all humanity that we're moving from washing clothes by hand to washing them with a washing machine and that's progress or that you know you go from believing in the gods to believing in the dr fauci that that's progress uh in the united states context or whatever right different notions of whether time is linear circular regressive spontaneous in some other way um all of that is crucial and a lot of it is missing at least in a north american or western uh, analysis of global affairs i'm also curious if you um because i want to ask you about a, a liberal education i know leo strauss is kind of the the exponent of, of what it means to 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 be a liberal in that sense of you know kind of opening your mind through the the, the means of a liberal education um but do you think that you know everyone should get a liberal education i don't know do you believe in the, in the concept of the kind of the the info hazard of uh you know too much information of people of not everyone being um, either interested or equipped or you know uh, well positioned to access the fruits of a liberal education because I think that's that's kind of the premise of liberalism it's like okay liberalism will work if everyone gets a liberal education and and we're all working towards everyone getting that and then once they have the software installed you know we're we're home free it's gonna it's gonna work. I don't think everybody can get a liberal education. I don't think everybody should get a liberal education. It's never been possible. It never will be possible. When Strauss analyzes this question, he says that the idea of universal equality or you know the premise, democratic premise as he sees it, implies, like you said, that everybody would have a liberal education. But since education requires free time, and since most people have to work, 
you could only have universal education if you had technological victory over scarcity or over the need to work. So if in principle, technology could give everybody the leisure that they needed to study, according to this argument, then maybe you would have a precondition for liberal education. But Strauss says the concern is that technology emancipated from moral control, which is what's implied, you know, the unleashing technology for the sake of equality, therefore for the sake of edu edu education, is uh, potentially a nightmare scenario. And the classics understood that better than the moderns do. So he had a concern about the technological moral implications of universal education. But he also said, and I think he's right here, that the gap between the vulgar and the wise, or between those who are potential philosophers and those who aren't, or let's put it differently, those who can benefit from a liberal education and those who cannot, is not one that can be overcome through technological means. It's, uh, it's not that kind of difference. You can't just manufacture a solution to the problem between one's, the problem of one's willingness and one's unwillingness or one's aptitude and one's ineptitude concerning, uh, you know, the, the greatest education available to a human being. So it remains a preserve of a few. And then you have the whole problem of the relationship between the few liberally educated and the many who are not liberally educated, therefore the whole problem of quote unquote, the city and man or philosophy and politics. But no, I don't think it should be a goal. I don't think it can be a goal. And I think anybody who tries to universalize liberal education doesn't understand the nature of liberal education or the nature of a human being. Mm -hmm. And there's there's also the, the the layer of technology that we have now because there are you know different approaches to um, you know liberalizing information and through that um, you also have all sorts of notions uh, of of politics and that's kind of where the idea of this this info hazard comes in that you know if if we're swimming in the soup of information and some some bits of information are are more dangerous than others or might be dangerous in a context where they're not understood very well. Uh, or they're, you know, they're just, you know, fragments of, uh, you know, things that that might uh, be incendiary to people who don't understand them. Um, do you think that's that's something, you know, especially in the context of the, the way technology is going at the moment, that's something that we might need to worry about? Or is it just, you know, the, the price of doing business if you're if you're going to be thinking uh, out loud and in the world and, and communicating? No, I think it belongs to the nature of political life that you have to worry about the information that's out there how people understand it, how they process it. We don't really understand, we are misunderstanding things if we think that it's a free-for-all in political life, that all opinions should be free to circulate all in the same way, that any information can fall indifferently into anybody's hands and have the same effect. Not at all. And you don't have to go very far in the canon of Western political philosophy to get arguments that help us to think through that issue. When at the start of Plato's Republic, Socrates is talking to Cephalists, the old man of the house in they get to the topic in a roundabout way of what justice is or requires of what justice consists and Kefla says you know socrates gets him to admit let's say or gives this formulation that justice is giving people what's theirs or returning you know giving people what is owed to them and then socrates says well if my friend lent me a gun and then he's in a absolutely horrible state of mind when he asks for it back. And I know that he's going to go, you know, slaughter his uh, neighbor or something like that. Is it just for me to give him the gun back or whatever, right? Should I return the weapon to him when he's not in his right state of mind? And Kefalus admits that, no, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So obviously there's more to justice than just giving people what's theirs. 
But this means that what belongs to you, what you have a right to, what is just for you to have varies as a function of your quote unquote state of mind. And information in this case is like the gun. Not everybody can have it in their hands because not everybody's in the right state of mind. Justice isn't just about giving everybody indiscriminately what they want or what they say is theirs. At its, at its best, it's about allocating the right things to the right people at the right time in the right way. And uh, that concerns also information, opinions, knowledge, truth, insight, and all of that. So at least we get thinking about it when we're barely two pages into Plato's Republic. And I think that that's, um, I think that that's right. Opinion for both Heidegger and Strauss is the politics is the realm of opinion. It's primarily held together by opinion. Philosophy is the attempt to transform opinion into knowledge. So there's some kind of understanding that has the effect of undermining the fabric of society by transforming it from opinion into knowledge. Now, on one hand, it's better to know than to opine. But on the other hand, if you undo opinion, it can have social and political consequences that may be you know, unwise, unjust to uh, hope for. So I think that that tradition has a nuanced and good understanding of the role of opinion, of understanding, of information, of dangerous ideas and dangerous thoughts without being, therefore, totally dismissive of the capacities of the people or of their legitimate claim to want to think for themselves. Mm -hmm. No, that, that, that makes sense. I, mean, I just wonder if the if the, the structure of how information gets disseminated and, you know, the, the, the quantity, the, the, the quality, the, the frequency and the intensity of information changes, um, if, if that could influence the, you know, our, our, e even the philosophical substructure that, you know, that we use to, to legitimate the, the fact that, okay, it, it is better to to kind of have the information out there than to uh, to try to restrict it. I mean, there, there's so many conversations going on about censorship. Um, and on the one hand, obviously, you know, being being someone who has some, you know, more and more out there opinions, you know, I, my position on censorship is obviously I, I'm on the I'm on the receiving end of it. So I'm, I'm very much, you know, opposed to it. But at the same time, I could see in, in the abstract that if you have a system that's, you know, accumulating info hazards, um, you, it, it could it could be a very destabilizing thing. So I, I don't know, I, I wonder that if, you know, if, if the fact that, you know, Plato could not conceptualize the, the nature of the, the information landscape as it is right now in 2021, if he, he might have had, you know, a, 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 not, not a change of heart, but maybe a, a more expansive nuanced uh, idea of, of what, what, what could be. Well, can you give me an, an example of what for you is like an info hazard that would be like a primary example of something that you think his analysis misses the mark of or, you know, that is particularly unique to our time and place? I mean, there's a, there are sorts of it depends. I mean, for, from from my perspective, less so, but I can see how uh, like there, there's a lot of um, discussion about. For example, you know, race and IQ, that's probably the, 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 the big info hazard that a lot of people, especially kind of people on the center, center left are trying to um, use censorship to, to, to push into, into more darker corners. I'm, I'm kind of on the fence on this as well, because I'm like, I, I feel like I, I kind of understand the outline of the problem. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, start <laughs> discussing this in, this in, in public, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I can understand why, you know, a, a nuanced, um, 
perspective on on where this information goes, how it's being treated is is chosen by a lot of people. Obviously, this is just one one example, but yeah. So look, in the Republic, when Plato is discussing the gods, he says that there are some things that we wouldn't want people to learn, even if they were true. Now, that seems strange because you would think that anything that's true is worth knowing. And at some level, that seems like, okay, it's better to know the truth than it is to not know it, or it's better to hear the truth than it is to hear lie. However, when we think about political life, what is required by political life? What's the nature of political life? What is the relationship between law and legitimacy? What holds a people or a community or a state or a society or an association together? So the idea that everything, let's assume that there are truths that you can't mention, okay? And you can't mention them because why? What would be the reason why? In another kind of regime, you wouldn't be censored from talking the truth, if it is one, about the relationship between race and IQ. If you had a racialist regime, let's say, right, then maybe you would even want to champion. That would be like the loudspeaker truth. That's what you'd be getting in your textbooks and everywhere else on the billboards and on the advertisements in the metro. However, there may be in a racialist regime, other truths that put that construction or constitution into question. And guess what? If it wants to preserve itself as a political community, the racialist regime will have to turn down the volume on those truths as well. It will have to not allow people to read deconstructive texts by Derrida or whatever the case is. You see, it's also going to have book burnings and censorship and cancellation. So the real question, if we zoom out, I think, beyond what speech is censored in a liberal democratic regime to why do regimes of any kind need to censor at all? Why can't there be a regime based on truth simply? Well, then we're getting closer to the heart of the problem, I think. And that's at least the perspective from which the guys that I work on give shed the most light in my, in my view. So does that helpful? Like that's again, that's the way I, I see it. Yes, there are some truths, but if it belongs to the nature of political life, if it's not just a feature of 21st century liberal democracy that you can't talk about some things without getting canceled, but if it is baked into the nature of political existence, then that's a different story that we somehow we need to then understand that at various different levels. What does that mean if we want to write about things that we think are truth or say things that we think are true or fight for the dignity of truth in public? Or what does that mean if we're in politics and we want to preserve the nature of our political community, but at the same time, without trampling on the dignity of human thought and of the human beings right to know what's actually the case. It's a huge set of questions, a much bigger one in my view, and a much more interesting one in my view than the one whether some particular bit of information not here and now is being censored or not. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And it's, um, it kind of leads me to to another thing I wanted to ask you um, about the, you know, the, the concept of the, the marketplace of ideas, um, and, and kind of what, what your relationship is, because you know, you are you are someone who, who brings ideas to the marketplace um, in, in a very, you know, explicit way. This is in a way your profession, you're a teacher. Um, but I feel like, you know, the, 
the, the idea that um, you know liberal is, is premised in a way on on the concept that okay the marketplace of ideas has kind of this self cleaning function where it's it's you know does does the arbitrage on itself and and you know spits out the the, the best uh, of the best um, and I feel like you know that's that's the idea in a way it's it, it it's presupposition is that this is how we find truth through the marketplace of idea uh, of ideas but it, it feels like you know in in reality that's that's not necessarily the case uh, and I'm, I'm i wonder what your what your just just your first feeling is about this concept and, and kind of how we can how we can engage with it yeah i don't think we find truth through the marketplace of ideas i think that for some people it's helpful to have alternatives, to hear alternatives. And in that sense, the marketplace may be a useful metaphor because you need to be able to think about the alternatives. And that means you need to be able to encounter them. That means there has to be somebody who's saying them or publishing them or indicating them or whatever. They have to be available for you to become familiar enough with them that you can think them through. But that may be, you know, one in a hundred people who hear the idea pause to consider it well enough to know whether or not it's true. So I don't think that just the friction of ideas shifting around in the bazaar or in the marketplace is going to mean that the best ideas come to the top. Probably the best ideas get trampled underfoot, you know, and the cheapest ones get uh, picked off for the greatest profit. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that seems to be a, quite a quite a common dynamic. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's probably one of the the major points of contention on on you know between the, the the liberals and the people who are kind of trying to discuss maybe something a bit more post-liberal yeah this is an idea that comes to mind right now like if if i'm looking for a diamond you know, i can easily be fooled by cubic zirconium if i don't know the difference between the two and if i don't have a chance to look closely if i haven't been trained and become an expert to some extent i can't differentiate between what's valuable and what's not valuable and it's not obvious that just the hustle and bustle of the market is going to make that for me because there's an incentive for the sellers to pass off something fake as something real to charge more rather than less all things being equal so i'm not anti-market and like i said i like the idea that let me give you an example dugan's books are banned from amazon okay so he's in that sense let's say at a very simple level He's been kicked out of the marketplace of ideas because people literally can't buy his books. Now, of course, they can watch his videos, go to his website, but let's just take a very narrow example. All things being equal, in my view, you know, it could be better for his books to be available because like I said, if you don't hear the alternatives, then you have nothing with which you have nothing, you don't have access to the thoughts that you need in order to get going. But, um, but that takes place in the heart and in the mind of each individual reader. And it's, like I said, probably more rare than common that somebody scores the real diamond in the marketplace if they just happen to be passing through. I also wanted to ask you about um, about Eastern philosophy uh, because you you said you were you were interested in, in, in mysticism and I'm curious because you know the, almost a cliche is that you know Eastern philosophy gives us a, a different perspective on the the reality of the self and uh, it kind of bakes in this idea that you you almost need to overcome you know the, the the basic unit of the individual to transcend i'm curious if that was influential in any way and if you have any kind of uh, ideas from from that uh, tradition yeah it wasn't an influential idea for me that we transcend the self in the direction of something greater but always something greater in the sense 
not like I transcend myself in the direction of my family, which is also greater than myself. Like it's more people and bigger and whatever. Right. But that it's a self-transcendence in the direction of eternity or that it's a self-direction, a self-transcendence in the direction of divinity, that it's a vertical self-transcendence as opposed to a horizontal self-transcendence. That was always a very appealing idea for me, an interesting one. And when you encounter it across so many people who have dedicated their lives to being mystics, I guess, or you know what I mean? They have made the idea of discovering our relationship to uh, God or to divinity thematic. They've spent 20 years in a monastery or 15 years doing spiritual practices or something like that. And they say that, yes, there's some thing you can undergo or experience or some level that you can reach or attain. And they have some understanding of what you would have to do to do that, a kind of moral purification, a sort of set of practices of self-discipline or whatever it is, or of uh, overflowing and unbounded love or faith, all of the different modalities of self-transcendence. That's, I think, for me, of course, it's been very influential, important, and interesting. And it attests to some dimension of human life that we can't just ignore and that I think um, we should try to understand. So one of the more, more interesting books I read in the last couple of years, it's outside of the field of the history of political philosophy or of, you know, phenomenology, all the things I normally work on. It was a book on uh, Kundalini yoga. I think it's called like Kundalini Tantra or something. It's a book on Kundalini yoga that described our various energy centers and various practices. And I thought, okay, this is actually a useful model for correlating different models of political self-understanding. Well, let me put it this way. What if as a hypothetical experiment, we were to think about people's political opinions as mapped onto the view of themselves as having various energy centers. So imagine somebody's heart center is wide open and all the other ones are closed. They're going to have a philosophy of humanity, of love, of benevolence, of uh, no radical divisions or distinctions. Okay, what if their uh, you know, third eye energy center was wide open and all the other ones were closed, then they're going to have a more divisive rat, you know what I mean? Um, conceptually demarcated view of the world or, and so on and so on. So likewise, you know, if their crown chakra was blown out and they're ungrounded, they're going to have one type of world interpretation, including interpretation of social and political life. That would be worth contrasting with someone who had the opposite, uh, energy configuration or whatever. So that's just like, for me, gives us a different way of configuring our thoughts about all of that. But definitely, as I said, before I ever went to university, the mystics were the ones who were closest to me throughout my university experience. They remained close to me. And until the day I die, and maybe after they'll be close to me. I think mysticism is something we need to look at and learn from or not. Those, those who feel drawn can, and those who don't, don't have yeah. to. I think you, you bring up something really important. It's this idea of, of being embodied. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like that's, um, that that's been another big lever for me. The, uh, you know, the concept of, of, of being, you know, treating, treating your body as kind of a, a, a tool rather than something integrated into, into what it is to, to be present in the world, what it is to be. Um, and I feel like, um, there, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of insight that we're neglecting related to to this because like what you were describing is essentially uh, ways of being embodied or ways of, of even just ways of, of being in in combination with the uh, with the body um that that is is you know it's something that 
I feel like the, the Western tradition is really estranged from or doesn't necessarily have very good concepts for. Um, and I feel like, you know, a lot, a lot of things that we see now, like the ideas like transhumanism, you know, even, you know, the transgender phenomenon and everything uh, kind of starts from this premise that you are separated from the body and the body is a, some, some form of decoration or tool or I don't know, I don't know, equipment that comes with the, with the homunculus that's guiding everything, uh, but that you're behind your eyes and you control everything. And, you know, why, why not uh, exchange your parts and change your, change your skins and do all sorts of uh, interesting things or download your consciousness, which already sounds a bit, you know, Gnostic. So I'm, I'm curious what your, what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I never connected it in quite the way that you were saying here, but you're giving me a lot to, to think about. And I think you're totally right. What kind of like I said, if I take the position of the yogic understanding of man, what would have to be going on for us to see ourselves as the way you just described, freely recreatable in our body? Probably if you were well grounded in your own bodily existence, you wouldn't see yourself as a playground for remanipulation. Like it could be that that represents something out of whack in terms of the harmonious existence of a human being or not. But I can imagine that, right? Where you've transcended the, you have the experience of having transcended your body, and then you can see it as something standing opposite and against you and can manipulate it as an object in the world. But it could be that that perspective ref reflects a distorted state of being in the first place. And another less somehow, uh, you know, um, esoteric or occult or yogic or whatever understanding of this is that, look, there are people just saying like Jack Murphy, for example, um, who has the Jack Murphy live podcast and all of that. And he's one of other people mentioning this, that men have a crisis of manliness in the modern world. And if they just exercise, then that will, that will actually have an effect on their social and political self-understanding. They will move for example, it says, if you just take somebody, if you want to take somebody from the left to the right, put them in a gym, give them a chance to exercise, and they'll see that they belong more on the right than on the left, independently of everything else. So that is just another simple way of beginning to see that what's going on with the body, with our being embodied, has an effect on our outlook and on all the rest of it. Uh, so there's definitely something there for sure. And just two other things I want to mention here in connection that you made pop out in my, uh, in my thinking here. The first one is that there is some importance of bodily training in the Western philosophical tradition, because in Plato's Republic, for example, the guardians, they undergo education in, in gymnastic, and it becomes a very important topic, a great one that I think is still relevant, where Socrates says, you don't want to have too much physical training with not enough music or learning about speeches, like, okay, intellectual activity, because then you become like a meat head who can't think roughly speaking okay you become too hard-headed and at the same time you don't want to have people who are only poets philosophers artists soft sensitive types who don't go to the gym they don't lift they don't do gymnastics because that's also going to throw their soul out of balance the human being requires in order to reach our best uh how can i put this without it sounding trivial trite or distorting plato in order to become worthy of ruling worthy of guarding the political community, we must bring our souls into harmony between gymnastic and music, between exercises and speeches. So that's there in Plato and the laws as well, and in other texts too. But I think we've moved, uh, possibly moved away from it to the extent that 
I've seen, now I'm just taking it down to the lowest level here, but I've seen articles circulating on social media that if you go to the gym to exercise your muscles, that's like a telltale sign that you are basically on a slippery slope to admiring Hitler or whatever, you know? Um, but yeah, the body, the body and its relationship to society and politics, for sure, a big theme. That's why the yoga stuff, when I read it, it was just like jumping out at me. We're nowhere there yet, I think, to like a political philosophy that incorporates yogic understandings of man to the constitution of various uh, political concepts or ideologies. But it seems like a like an experiment worth uh, making. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, what you say about, you know, Jack Murphy and the idea that, you know, men can... Um, can kind of rediscover facets of themselves by by exercising and you know lifting heavy things and all this stuff. I think there's kind of a, a female equivalent to that, and it's just being pregnant, being pregnant. You know, having children, giving birth. It's it's quite a it's quite an embodying experience, and it also it, it just teaches you a lot about um, yeah about kind of the lack of control that you have, uh, and you know just you're kind of in this maelstrom of physical changes and there is you know there's a replica of you or some some form of uh you know kind of um of, of an outside force kind of taking you over and it's it's very hard to um believe in the self-making self while a different self is making you and um and i know uh, mary harrington who's been on this podcast before she's kind of she has a lot of great uh, articles written on this and the idea that you know motherhood is is not transformational just because all oh, you you, you're bringing this this other person in the world is transformational for the, the being that is becoming the mother as well so i think you know you know the the lack of embodiment might also be tied to the fact that people you know either are having children very late or they're not really that you know crazy about having this experience anymore that's a great point and i think it also goes to show just how far removed from embodiment the contemporary post-liberal world has become if it doesn't even want to link the concepts of being a woman to motherhood or to pregnancy and generalize as birthing person to a gender neutral context. It just is an avoidance of embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reading yesterday some article that was, um, yeah, this is, this is a, a very strange one about a, a woman, um, a trans woman who was uh, trying to, to breastfeed a baby and, it was probably the most grotesque thing I've, I've, I've ever read. And uh, I, the fact that we're kind of all caught up in this uh, in this hysterical act of disembodiment uh, and accepting accepting this premise is just a, a bit crazy to me. And I feel like, you know, this could be a turning point because it is absolutely bonkers, but it could also just be, you know, another another brick in the wall. And <laughs> I don't know, it's uh, what's what's your feeling about this? You know, what? Do you have a, a, an instinct about what time it is in, in, the, in the evolution of, of the post-liberal, post-modern uh, experiment? Well, I look at I don't know where things are going. I just know they're going somewhere fast. But I had, you made me think of something that I want to share because I understand in some sense the inclination or the impulse to abstract from the body because there was a time when I was reading those mystical texts a long time ago that I had this, you know, untutored, unlearned hunch, opinion, or intuition where I thought, look, if spiritual perfection means minimizing our appetite, not just our appetite for food and drink, but our appetite for bodily pleasure, if that's the case, then the most enlightened people spiritually won't be having children because they won't be copulating. 
And if that's the case, then the logical end of human history is going to be when everybody has reached their spiritual maturity. There will be no more need, there will be no more impulse to propagate because people will have transcended the desire for bodily pleasure. So there was a time in my own life when I thought overcoming the family and overcoming the body was a sign of spiritual progress. And I can understand why people, some people today would think that part of human technological evolution is leaving our bodies beside like a husk that we've outgrown. What we are is independent from what we have, like you said, when you gave the image of ourselves inside the body like a tool. And it's not an incoherent idea. It's not an incoherent idea that the next phase of human existence requires leaving our bodies behind. But the fact that it's coherent doesn't mean that it's true. And it doesn't mean that it's the only coherent alternative. But I just wanted to put that in there that it's not totally wacky. I mean, some expressions of it may be, and some people who represent it may say completely crazy things, but there's at the same time a possible justification for it. And then, you know, that forces us to think about, well, why is that not the case? Why, why is it not the case that we're just evolving through a phase of human existence where we're cl more closely bound to our bodies than we will be at some subsequent, more elevated stage of human existence. Now, I'm not saying I share that view again. I'm just saying it's something worth, uh, worth considering. The trends of contemporary post-liberalism, look, I don't know what it's like everywhere in the world, but there's a lot to be, on one hand, excited about, I think, and happy about, and a lot to be terrified by and totally distraught by. There are many developments that are grotesque, perverse, absurd, and evil that are well worth fighting against. And at the same time, there are good people doing good things who should be supported and championed. So I'm not a, uh, I guess people say like, I'm not blackpilled on, on this. You know, there's some, as usual, a mixed bag. Something's going well, something's going badly. And I think we want to focus on what's going well and amplify it, encourage it, focus on what we think is going badly and try to make our best case against it. And I find myself, you know, on the gender politics, on the ideological brainwashing of children about race and gender being the most important categories in human life and in an upbringing, all of that is bad. In my view, those, we could do much better in educating children and focusing on what's important. And at the same time, as a total layman here, you know, there are developments in, uh, like, I'm going to sound. This is not my area of expertise, okay? But I listen to some interviews about cryptocurrencies, about Bitcoin, and how that could help people who work get paid daily instead of biweekly, and that therefore they don't fall behind on on a payment that on a mortgage payment that they have to make or whatever, right? On a rent payment they have to make, and it'll give people a better experience of financial life, a better experience of life. They won't get dinged just because they didn't get their paycheck in two weeks because of all the friction in the financial system. So that's new. And that's good. Whereas the gender brainwashing also knew not so great. So it can go, uh, it can go either way in that sense. It's uh, probably there's going to be a lot of different streams going full speed ahead. Some people want to overcome the human, leave it behind in their dust. There are Prometheans among us who have a certain view about the nature of technological development and human development. And then there are all of the different traditionalists, reactionaries, uh, conservative revolutionaries. So it's an interesting time to be observing what's going on. I think the lockdown policies, I don't know, again, what it's like in Romania. In Canada, we've had many examples of horrible policies concerning COVID. And I think I haven't listened to your conversation with him yet. I know you had Darren Beattie on, and he's doing a good job indicating 
the danger of the policy response to COVID, the, that it's not just a matter of where it originated or of placing blame on China. It's really been a policy failure in many places. So that's something that's concerning, the roll-up of civil liberties and all the rest of it. I mean, normalization of kind of experimental people know. There's a lot going on in the COVID policies that I think are potentially worrying and that may be precedent setting. But, you know, every generation will have its multiple challenges and issues and pick the ones you care about and fight for them. For me, the defense of learning, of education, of philosophy, of political philosophy, of seeing the alternatives, that's my main area. And I'm doing what I can to help with educating people, not by giving them a dogma to believe in, but by giving them the wherewithal to think through some big topics carefully and uh, well. Yeah, and, and I want to thank you for that. I feel like you're you're definitely one of the the, the, the clearest thinkers in this space and in others. And you know, you're definitely a, a born teacher. And uh, it's it's you know, I don't know if you feel like this is your calling, but you're definitely very well suited to to this profession. So so thank you for what you're doing. Um, thank you. Before, before I let you go, I want to uh, ask you the question of the show, and this is uh, the subversive thinker question. Do you um, have anyone that's uh, a subversive thinker that you feel like people do not read enough of um, that they, you know, they they would be uh, well placed to look into? Um, anyone, you know, living or dead, ancient or modern. <laughs> well, besides the ones I've mentioned, because I think some, you know, if Dugan's a bit of a subversive, uh, these other thinkers each in their own way. Even Strauss, strangely enough, though, he may have uh, may come across as more uh, moderate than all of that. He's a subversive thinker in his own way. But independently of all of those figures, the look, in some sense, the mystics that I was reading back in the day were subversive. There's some who come to mind, but I don't necessarily want to mention they're from my youth, you know, and I haven't read them in a long time and I don't know. But like, okay, Hakeem Bey was somebody that in my mid-teens or whatever, you know, I was reading and thinking, okay, this is somebody who's giving me access to something I wouldn't normally have thought about in a way that's kind of creative and interesting. So look, I feel, you know, I tied my wagon to a shooting star of a few thinkers who mean the most to me, Strauss, Dugan, and Heidegger. So they're the ones that I have recourse to. And besides that, I think I'm just going to go with my, with my main three on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like you're, you know, you're you're someone who promotes subversive thinkers as a as a profession. So I think, you know, you're you're covered on this one. But you know, had to had to ask the question just to to elicit something. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're working on on anything new, um, anything you want people to know about. Yes. Yeah, so I'm teaching mostly. I have courses on Leo Strauss's on tyranny, which you're kind enough to have a look at and say something nice about which I appreciate. So there's a course on Leo Strauss's on tyranny. I have a course on Heidegger's being in time. And I'm working on a course now on the fourth political theory and many, many more courses planned. So that's at millerman.teachable.com. But people can also get there through michaelmillerman.ca, which is my website where all of my essays, articles, and interviews are usually posted. That's the main thing. I have a book out on Heidegger and political philosophy. It's called Beginning with Heidegger. So if anybody finds that particular topic interesting, they can have a look at the book. I do a lot of interviews where I just try to share what I can about these thinkers and topics. Thanks, by the way, again, for having me on today. So I just did an interview yesterday with Telos Magazine about an article on Dugan I wrote for them. That's going to be coming out. And if people want, they can follow me on Twitter. It's M underscore Millerman. 
So that's basically it. Whenever I do something, it's up on my website or elsewhere. And building out the school is really the main thing I'm working on now. Excellent. Uh, and like you mentioned, I can definitely recommend the the Strauss uh, on Tyranny course. Uh, this is really informative. Um, and yeah, and everything else you put out. I mean, I'm definitely uh, I, I listen to Millerman talks whenever it comes out. So uh, please, please, guys do do sign up and, and listen because it's uh, it's a it's a treasure trove of subversive thinking, even probably even more than this podcast. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Michael. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. It's been great. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.